Welcome back to the Defining Moments podcast. On today's episode, we continue our eight-part series on leadership through adversity with Senior Chief Tom George, CEO of Quarterback Impact Academy. Today, Senior Chief George shares the moment it finally clicked with him and his role as a leader. This episode is brought to you by CMM Financial Services. At CMM, we know how hard it is to find someone who knows and cares enough to create the tax and wealth plan that you deserve. After walking alongside hundreds of clients for the past 20 years with accounting, bookkeeping, tax strategy, and financial planning, we have created a proven system to help you reach your financial goals. CMM has your complete financial team to reach your financial goals. Book a call at cmmfinancialservices.com. So I was at this point in my career where Sydney, Sanchez Smith, and, and Chief Flip Padilla were kind of pushing me to be better. Um, and, and what I mean is they wanted me to lead on a larger scale other than just, um, they, they wanted people to follow me, not because of my title or rank, um, you know, which I've always believed is the worst way to lead. Um, and don't, don't get me wrong now, I, I'm not, it's not something um, in my interpretation that, that you can study or understand until it hits you. But I've always believed that leading with a title or a rank is honestly one of the most cowardly ways to lead. Um, and I wanted, they wanted me to understand that if you lead the right way, people will follow, will follow you without you having to express why, right? Like, um, like I'm the CEO, that's why. If you have to say that, you're really not leading anybody. You're, you're, you may be dictating, but nobody's following you. They're doing it because they don't want to get in trouble, right? And I, I've always believed that that's, I've been blessed because as, and I, I will continue the story, but in my, in my military career and in coaching, I've never had to say, do this because of who I am. If I've asked somebody to do something, number one, I've done it. Um, I would never ask somebody to do something I've never done. And number two, I want them to do it because it's the best thing for them or us and it's good for the team and they should believe in doing it, right? You know, so that's always been a big deal to me. And that's the way that that Chief Padilla and, and Senior Chief Sidney Smith led. Um, but like I said, we were at this crossroads and we did a lot of missions. And there were times where I wouldn't see them for a week because they would fly and, and they would have stuff going on. And then I would have stuff. So we wouldn't cross paths. And I remember... I was sitting at home and it was the middle of the afternoon and, and Flip called me, uh, Chief Padilla. And, uh, and it was very out of the blue. And uh, he said, hey, Smitty passed. And there was no, there was nothing leading up to it. Um, and I remember sitting there and I, I kind of froze. Number one, I, I, I didn't make chief yet. And I had pretty much let him down up to this point because I never became the person he invested in. 
because he invested a large portion of his career in developing me as a leader and human being. And the first thing I could think of was that I let him down. Um, and then of course, figuring out why, um, contacting his wife. So a lot of things led up to the next two weeks of the passing of one of the greatest senior chief operators um, that the Navy's ever seen. Um, and there's no books or movies with his name on it, um, but that's why he's great because there doesn't need to be, uh, you know what I mean? Like, and uh, I remember the impact it made on a group of people. I'll give you an example. He was, he made such an impact that the higher ups, the captains and commanders decided to fill up four airplanes with young sailors and they flew us, they flew them all to Louisiana to be there for his funeral. And by the way, the, the military doesn't do that. Like close friends and families will go to his funeral in uniform, but they don't fill four airplanes up with hundreds of young people that want to be there at his funeral. Um, and I remember these airplanes landing in Louisiana as I was on one of them. And I remember 21 people in, in each airplane. So we were all changing into our, our, our dress whites with medals. And of course we do it the right way. So we formally march, um, to our location and, and the viewing and, and, and then the cemetery. Um, and I remember honoring, honoring him in such a way that there was no, there was no number associated with how we honored him. It didn't matter how much it cost for the government to use those airplanes for that or to get us there. What matters is that his family saw how much he was respected and how many lives he changed. Um, like young people that barely knew him got on this airplane just to go to his funeral and honor him. And I remember seeing just this auditorium of young men and women in dress whites in tears as, as we spoke about him and, and, and his wife spoke about him and, and I could see her face as we honored him. And, um, you know, to this day, I, I'm still friends with his wife and, um, she's such an amazing lady, so strong. Uh, and, uh, you know, so after, after, after Smitty died, I made chief the next year and people say that, um, when you make chief and you put on the uniform, there's just overnight sensation of change in who you are. Um, and honestly, that wasn't the case for me. Now I saw it in other people, but for me, it wasn't the case for me because I felt like I was molded to serve in that, in that role years before I, I was selected to chief. And I say that humbly, I didn't get selected because I didn't deserve to get selected. But when I got selected, I was ready to lead and I was ready to lead because chiefs and senior chiefs and other people invested in me. Um, so I was ready to lead. Um, 
And when I became a chief, I was immediately put into a position of authority that never happens for a brand new chief. So the largest aviation wing in the Navy is Wing 11 in Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. So Wing 11 owns at the time, like four squadrons, hundreds of airplanes, um, probably 1500 troops, sailors, all fall under Wing 11. So I was appointed when I made chief as um, the Wing 11 training chief. So all these enlisted flyers, essentially, and their groups were, and these operators that were all in these aviation squadrons all belong to me. My commanding officer and in the wing, your commanding officer, his title is the Commodore. So think about big spectrum, right? All these, all these young enlisted operators fall under these, uh, these commands and then they all fall under this Commodore. And then the Commodore has a wing chief, which is me and I'm a pup, right? I'm a pup in ranks eyes, but not in, you know, so, and his name is Mark Turner. Um, Commodore Mark Turner, who to this day is probably my, one of the most influential leaders that I can ever thank. Um, we're still friends. And, uh, as I continue, I, 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 I played a role in his retirement and, uh, he's my guy and he, uh, I love that dude. Uh, but anyway, so, so now I'm at the largest wing and, uh, typically when you go from chief to senior chief, it's another drastic step, right? You got to think the highest rank enlisted rank is master chief. So it, there's chief, senior chief and master chief, right? There's some time involved there typically. Okay. So now I'm the wing training chief and Commodore Turner, he essentially determines how I play out in my career. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty hard. I was, I was pretty hard on accountability. I was pretty hard on operator qualifications. I was very hard on the squadrons. I held their chiefs accountable, but you got to think about this now. You're a 22 year chief that's been a chief for 12 years. And this guy who just made chief is holding you accountable, right? Um, it was tough for those guys because I used to be Petty Officer George, right? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. the hothead, yep. selfish. So I never used that. I just held them accountable. And accountability is tough if you don't understand why you're being held accountable which is a large portion of the failures in our government and society today. Regardless of which way you look, right, left, blue, red, I just want one elected official to stand up and say, I fucked up. Just one. I just want one to say, I made a horrendous decision and I'm an absolute buffoon. Please vote for me again. Just one. I just want one. Taking ownership. Take ownership, man. I, I, I've never understood why if you fail at something, accept ownership, ask for grace and empathy, and then move forward, right? To me, that's leadership. To me, leadership isn't saying, I did everything right. I don't understand why you guys don't see it. That, to me, that's not leadership. So, I, man, I kind of molded into this. A lot of people used to joke. I was kind of like this Sydney Smith, like 
I was this guy and uh, I kind of morphed into this leadership leadership role and I I, I made sure that and, and I shouldn't say I made sure because I don't want that to send con sound condescending but I, I wanted all the leaders to understand that we all mean nothing if our younger troops aren't taken care of because the only reason we're able to succeed is because there's a group of human beings between the ages of 18 and 24. They don't get a lot of money. They do all the BS work. And because of them coming to work every day and showing up, and most of them are young men and women that, that haven't gone to college, that don't have this huge education, but they've, they've raised their hand and said the oath, and they've chosen to serve. And because of their service, we're able to succeed. Um, and I think we forget that sometimes, right? So, like, I kind of, I kind of flipped the switch, and I was, I was impacting lives without knowing I was impacting lives, which is the way you're supposed to do it. Um, and, and so, I believed in the culture at Wing 11 and what we were doing. I felt like holding people accountable was important. And I finished at Wing 11 and I'm still a young chief, remember, right? And I go to another squadron, but now I'm not just uh, a young operator in the squadron. Now I am the leader of the shop right and i'm the 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 crew leader right so i get to the squadron and nine months later i get selected to senior chief and i'll be honest with you i think a lot of people probably didn't want me to get selected to senior chief which is okay i probably if i was them i probably wouldn't want me to get selected to senior chief either to be to be totally transparent um so I get selected to senior chief and my role changes a little bit. And I remember in, 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 our, in our AW shop, we had 46 operators in it at the time. Um, Aviation warfare operators is an AW, okay? So we're in this shop, there's 46 operators. There's me and then I have a chief under me and then I have a a structure, right? And I remember we're, we're, we're about four months away from deployment. And when you deploy in the Navy, you build up to it. You just don't deploy, right? People don't realize that. Like the Navy just didn't say, go to war. You build up to it and you have to pass tests and qualifications and tactical simulators. And, and every day our operators are going through simulators and tactical tests and, and they're studying and they're passing. So as you probably know, I'm pretty hard on the group, but these young people are, gr they're growing, they're grinding, they're, they're, uh, they're not pushing back. And, and so about four months before deployment, I have a meeting with the shop and I said, Hey, I want, I want everybody to email me their, their, and at the, this was unheard of by the way. And I'm not, uh, trust me, this isn't me saying I'm special, but I was compelled to do it. And, uh, I said, Hey, email me, um, the mailing address of the adult outside of your spouse that's most influential in your life, mom, dad, grandma, uncle, whatever. And then, and please give me their title, label. <clears throat> so I get 
over time, over the week, I get 46 emails, right? And I go by um, note paper and envelopes and stamps and I don't type. And I commenced to writing 46 personal letters to everybody under my lead. And I wanted, I wanted their parents to know that, that like I'm going to bring them home. Like that was my, I wanted them to know that when they go to bed at night and the young men and women and their children that rose their hand and gave the oath to defend their country, that although it's a noisy world and the media does this and that and that, that in the, in the deep down in the shop, we're going to go on deployment and I'm going to bring every one of them home. And it was important to me that a mom got to read that from me. And, uh, you know, to this day, and I retired in 2016, to this day, I still get Facebook messages or text messages from sailors whose parents still have that, that letter. And I, you know, I, I remember, uh, you know, just taking, taking 15 minutes out of my day as I went through these letters and, and mailing them off was probably more than the United States Navy has done for their families in the entire time their children served. Um, and I, you know, at, at that point in my career, and remember, I'm a senior chief now, I, I think I finally woken up to, to what's important. And what was important was that um, if you if you go back and look at any any speaking events I've done in the past since I've retired that entail military members, including my retirement and 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 any retirements I've been a part of, I would always open with um, acknowledging those young men and women that serve our country because they don't reap the benefits that that the rest of us get to reap and they're not acknowledged as much as they deserve to be acknowledged in this country. So it was important to me. Um, and at the end of the day, I just wanted mom and dad to know that, that man, I'm gonna bring them home. Yeah. Um, and, and that deployment, you know, they all came home. Yeah. Um, you know, so that was a point in my career that I thought that, hey, I think I'm doing it right. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I I was never as confident as a lot of people think I am. I've never been insecure, but it's always been important to me that I like. If if you ever said, if is there one thing that that weighs on you, um, and it's always been failing young people. Um, and, and, and today, currently in my life, it's failing Shelly and the girls and the boys and every single kid I touch at QB Impact Training. Um, cause I can fail myself all day, but man, I don't want to fail them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think we forget that, man. I, I think... I think leaders are so self-consumed with themselves that they could care less who they fail as long as 
as long as they don't fail. And it's such a failure in leadership. Um, and I wish it was different. Um, and I wish we, I, I wish I had a chance to, to have those conversations with, with, with people in leadership and, and do I fail at it every single day, but do I try to be better at it every single day? You know, and, and I, I just think those are areas we can be better at. Um, I think those are areas that, that leaders of corporations and, and, and football teams and coaches and, and I'll be honest with you, uh, politicians and people in public service can be better at. Uh, you know, we're so caught up in, in improving what we can do um, that sometimes I think we lose sight of the little things that, that we just need to do. Um, you know, so that, that's kind of that's what's, what's always been my focus. Um, so I spent 16 years in Jacksonville, Florida, and, and I know I've kind of I've went quick through, um, through my time there, but I, I do want to talk about a, a moment. I remember being in Talil, Iraq, and I remember taking off on an airplane out of Talil, Iraq, and we had 11 crew members on board. <clears throat> and it leads to leadership, and it leads to um, adversity and realizing that you better lead when, when, when it gets hard. Um, and anytime planes took off out of Talil, Iraq during the war, we, it, it was a tactical descent or ascent. It was a, so it was an aggressive takeoff, right? And I remember, uh, I, I can't give a lot, obviously, but I remember being at 18,000 feet um, over Baghdad, and I was in the, the rear starboard window, um, and I was looking out the window, and our radar operator was hearing ticks in his radar, and I remember screaming, missile, 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 starboard side, and our flight engineer is up with the pilots and I remember him saying punch and the pilots screaming punch and what punch means is they're punching our chaff and flare and he's screaming why is the plane descending why is the plane descending and we had a 19 year old young man on board and he was on he was there to, he was in Iraq to train he was young just joined the Navy married, two kids. I don't want to say his name for privacy, but I, I, I will never forget his face. The planes falling out of the sky were punching chaff and flare. And I see him run by me and he throws up and he's screaming. Um, now, now the plane's descending, right? As this is happening. And I'm in this, in the starboard window. Um, and, and I remember him running by and I grab him and, and I'm still looking out of the starboard window and then there's a seat across me and I, I kind of force him and I'm like, sit down. And so we, we recover, there's a huge glare out of the window and 
one of our officers who's a tactical coordinator screams explosion. Um, and I remember he doesn't know he's alive because he hears explosion and he's internalizing it as if it's, it's a wrap and he's screaming at the top of his lungs. And, uh, so the plane levels out and I remember grabbing him and trying to calm him down. Um, you know, and he was, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I have a wife, I have young kids. I can't do this. When I land, I'm going to quit. And, you know, if you quit during wartime, um, it, it's not an easy discharge. I mean, it's, it's almost, um, it's a dishonorable discharge. And, uh, I remember, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't prevent him when we landed, uh, he asked me to escort him into the commanding officer's office. And this was two o'clock in the morning. So we had to wake up the commanding officer. He woke up anyway, obviously, cause we almost got shot down and he wanted to get a debrief. But I remember him asking me to go with him and him and him saying that he wanted to go home and that he would accept the punishments of a discharge during time of war which is basically quitting on your country. Um, and I remember me sitting back and trying to relive what I've, what I could have, what, what I could have done different. Um, and how at that time and place, my sole priority was obviously his safety, but I remember not sleeping that night. Um, and at this point, the Navy, the Navy's not a graceful, optional type of place. You don't say, I quit, send me home, and then wake up and be like, oh, I changed my mind. Like, it don't work that way. So I knew it was done. Like, I, I made sure I checked on him in the morning. Um, and, of course, it takes about a week to get back to the States. So, he, you know, he checked out. And I remember going to his room at about 6.30 in the morning with a cup of coffee. And he was bloodshot. Um, he couldn't, you can't call home and you're in Iraq. You can't call home and tell your wife what happened. Right. You just can't do that. Right. So he struggled with that. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was one of those that I'll live with for a while. Um, even today, you know, I retired in 16 and I, I, even with Facebook, I have no idea where the young man's at. I've tried to look him up. Um, I have no idea if his marriage succeeded or his children or what he ended up going and doing. Um, I, I know for a fact he didn't get much treatment when he got out um, because he was he was kind of earmarked as a quitter. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's a leadership challenge that that I, I've worn with me um, that I've asked myself over and over. In, in that in that instantaneous time what did we do prior to going to Iraq that could have helped this young man handle that better um, and the reason I bring that up is because we we talk about leadership but when we fail as leaders 
Um, and, and measurement of failure is different. You may not think I failed. I think I failed that day because I lost the young man mentally. Um, I, don't, I don't know if he's alive today. I don't know if it tore his head up. I don't know. Um, but we lost a young man. And leading up to that deployment to Iraq, was he a young man we just put to the wayside as we prepared to deploy? Was he a young man that, that had a wife and two kids at an early age and we kind of we said he'll be all right, he's just another young man? There's, right, you, you can relive so many of these, these things in your head um, that if you fail as a leader in those instances, you know, it, you affect you affect lives, man. And, and I, I don't think, I don't think societally in society, we realize that when we make, when we, you don't, it's not always about the decision you make at that time, but how you treat people leading up to those times, it's a big deal. Um, and I was always a guy that was pretty hard on people and I still am today. Um, I, I'm not a everybody gets a trophy sugarcoat type of guy and I wouldn't have changed the way I led him but I think I could have changed the way I got him ready for deployment um, and again he's a young man whose name is I still carry with me and, and I hope that someday I can we cross paths and I can and I hope he's happy and, and his kids are grown and, and, and I can tell him that I should have did better because I should have. Uh, but, you know, I, I, <clears throat> there's, you know, there's, there's a thousand stories like that in the military of young people that gave up everything um, and, and, and never really were appreciated for, for service or honors that you know, that they, or things that they went through. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I think for me, I've always tried to use that as a tool. Thank you for tuning into Defining Moments podcast. We hope you enjoyed episode four of Leadership Through Adversity. Next week in part five, we learn how Senior Chief George transitioned from leading sailors to leading student athletes. For more Defining Moments podcast content, visit our webpage, www.undefeated.show. Follow us at Def Moments Pod on Twitter and at Defining Moments Podcast on Instagram.